0: Born just before the Second World War, she began life in war-torn Germany and ended it alone in a hospital in Ibiza after a freak cycling accident. In between times, she was a singer, songwriter, musician, muse, model and actress, though she's often remembered for being a junkie. this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and in this episode, we delve into the life and times of the artist Krista Pafgen, better known to most of us by her stage name, Nico, who perhaps like some of her contemporaries in the 60s and 70s, who'd been very beautiful, became blamed later almost for growing old and less beautiful. Somebody who, despite being a fiercely independent artist for many, many years, became defined by some of her lifestyle choices. And I'm very pleased to have with us at the bureau today, Dr. Jennifer Otter Becker, rock and roll historian, whose new book on Nico, "You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone," will be published later this year by Faber and Faber. It's a very strong biography of a very strong woman. So I'm very pleased to have. The very strong author with us, Jennifer Otter-Bickardite. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello,
1: darling. That was perfect. In one, you got it. Not even, my, not even my family members usually get it in one after all these years. I'm quite impressed.
0: <laughs> well, I'm impressed by anybody who shares a middle name with a wonderful aquatic creature like the otter.
1: It was, it was actually my maiden name and I have to tell you I went to Olympic trials for swimming and so for many years when I was training in the pool we'd be at swim meets and they would call out you know in lane four swimming for the Cabrillo Threshers Jennifer Otter and everybody thought it was like a stage name but no it was my actual actual name B- B- Bigger Dyke, Dyke is no joke though that's my married name so you know you know that's commitment when you're taking that on
0: <laughs> absolutely well listen let's dive in uh Jen um I'm not going to repeat the the sort of puff that your publishers say about you or the stuff on your website. Let's hear it from the source. Let's warm you up and and, and get in there uh, with this question to start with before we get on to the subject of Nico and the book. Who is Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke? Why don't you tell us yourself?
1: Well, I'm just a simple girl from Santa Cruz, California. (laughs) What can I say? Um, I moved here because be, my the short story is I went to Olympic trials when I was 16 for swimming and I didn't make it. And from that, I completely just said F, F swimming after like pretty much my whole childhood and teenage years being an athlete. And I just kind of dove headfirst into music. And I started putting on shows in my, in my hometown show. This is like in the, or late eighties, early nineties. So it was with bands like Sublime and No Doubt, that kind of ska, ska punk scene that was starting to emerge. And then eventually, when I it was time to get a job, I started working in the music industry. And by the time I was twenty five, I was the head of marketing at Interscope Geffen A and M, and I did that for about eight years. I left that to help Gwen Stefani start her handbag line, which then eventually can't turn into her fashion line. I left that to get a master's and also to work at Facebook. And then one of my friends I'd grown up with was murdered uh, not far from my house in San Francisco. And it just was kind of, you know, like that wake up call of what am I doing with my life? And I sold everything I own and moved to England. And the only way I could do that was to either get married to an English person, which I didn't know any, uh, or to get a PhD. So, you know, I did what everybody would do, obviously, is I came and got a PhD. So that's why I'm Dr. Jennifer Otter-Bickerdijk.
0: I didn't mention the doctor bit. Sorry about that.
1: Oh, you oh. bastard! Don't let that happen again. No, it's fine. I really don't care. It's not a big deal. We,
0: we'll, we, we listen. We like we like rock and roll doctors around here though, because um, uh, we've we've had a few actually. In fact, I had Rob, <gasps> I had um, uh, Rob Chapman um, who uh is Sid Barrett's biographer. He's got a doctorate in what he calls Sidology. He actually got his PhD in Sid Barrett.
1: Well, I was going to say I'm probably way more rock and roll than him, but we would have to maybe arm wrestle for it because my PhD is in Joy Division, joy division <laughs> and Nirvana.
0: Excellent. Uh, the, 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 the third rock and roll doctor that we've had, actually, or the the first on the show was uh, Dr. Sam Hutt. Now, you might know not know that name. Sam Hutt actually was, was the rock and roll doctor in the 60s and 70s. He's still practicing, actually. In fact, he ministered to Sid Barrett and Brian Jones and many of those people. Uh, back in 70s. So you're, you're anyway, you're our third doctor, and we've had a couple of obes. Now the thing is, Jen, you didn't mention very because uh, that was a very modest, I thought, a very modest summation of your life to date. You didn't mention your books: 2016, Joy Division, The Importance of Ian Curtis. Sorry, Joy Devotion. I beg your pardon. Devotion. <laughs> Are they so clever? <laughs> 2014, Second Lives of Kurt Cobain and Ian Curtis again, and of course 2017's Why Vinyl Matters, your bestseller to date. Pay into the vinyl record so that's all behind us but um and you also describe yourself as a fangirl which I picked up a little bit of that then when you're talking about goldsmiths but let's just circle back to the subject of the day what brought you to write this new biography of nico
1: well what happened with that is i had finished why vinyl matters and you know as an author you're like okay what's going to be the next thing i'm going to do and I was out in Soho. It's it's so, it's so cliche. It's sad. Drinking wine, as one does. And I was sitting there with, with a friend and we were just like, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to write about? And I started going through like all of my idols. I'm like, I want to do one on Cindy Lauper. I want to do a book on Gloria Estefan, like all these things. And of course there's been like there does not need to be another book on Gloria Estefan. And especially, I'm gonna sound like a complete and utter jerk, but there really I don't know anyone else. There probably is, but I don't know anyone else that has like worked at a, a record label building fandom. I mean, that was my job was to build fandom. So I, I came in being a fan, my job was to build fandom, and then I went and worked for someone who I, from an early age, and you know, working with Gwen, I had seen her go from being like a kid, like she's older than I am, but like going from being just a girl playing in a band with her brother to being an international icon. I'd seen that firsthand, that evolution, and been a part of that evolution really kind of every step of the way. And then I went to work at Facebook. So it's kind of like I went from the most analog to the most digital. And then I got the PhD. So I was able to kind of study the theoretical stuff behind it. That night after we'd done Soho drinking one, I went and I just went on Professor Google and I started looking up like... Who are the most important women in rock and roll? And it's all, and of course, it's like, duh, like people, why didn't I think of like Susie Sue, who I worship when I was staying there in Soho? Why didn't I think of Chrissy Hine, who I think is a complete badass? And then I came to Nico and I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to be this like academic, you know, rock and roller. What do I really know about Nico? I mean, I know like what I knew the most about her was from being a huge Royal Tenenbaums fan. And that amazing scene, like, I mean, I, for like my whole 20s and 30s, I'm like, I am Margot Tenenbaum, basically. Scene, of course, where like these two, this like adopted brother and sister, they've been lusting for each other forever. They like are reunited. And these days, by, I mean, Goosebumps is talking about it. These days, by Nico plays. And it's just like.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that because, you know, that soundtrack, uh, which I I love that soundtrack. And these days, and is it the fairest of the seasons? There's two Nico tracks on there, isn't there? Yeah. And again, I mean, like I said to you earlier, is that I'm, I'm, I, don't know much about Nico and, and never really followed her actually, and I think that was that was maybe the, one of the first times that I heard it in the context of that film, which, as you say, is a bit of a, sp- a spine tingly moment. And then, as you know, we are saying earlier, in the context of the of the Gansborg penned track "Strip Tease," but that's enough. That let let so it started to sort of percolate in your brain that she was somebody worth worthy of your attention. And I think the other interesting thing, which we're going to come into as well, is is that. She's been paid somewhat the wrong kind of attention, and I think uh, hasn't she? So, when you decided it was going to be Nika rather than Susie, rather than Chrissy Hind, rather than any of those other people that you mentioned, was it that was it inspired by that, by hearing it in Royal Tenenbaum's?
1: Kind of, but I, I mean, let me say, let me say it, Susie, if you're listening, honey, anytime you want, I'm here for you, girl. Okay, anytime you want get my number, holla at your girl right here. Cause anytime I would, I would kill for that. And I mean, I still worship Chrissy. I love all those, I love all those women and I wouldn't be here without them, but with Nico, it just, there wasn't very much written about her and like there'd been one big biography that had been written and it'd been written by someone 20 plus years ago. And it had been written by someone that didn't really know her very well. And the more I kind of looked into like, what was that relationship? It was, I didn't really understand, like, how did he find out the information? It was kind of unclear. And then there was an amazing book by someone named James Young, who actually has become a dear friend of mine. And he was in her band, um, The Faction, who was kind of the last touring band. So there's these, and that book is about his kind of like the trials and tribulations of being on the road of Nico and that last last tour is the last tour she does so there's kind of there wasn't really anything written there so there's this huge like void and i'm like why is there a void of this person that's supposed to be one of the most important women in rock and roll and that like fascinated me how like this person could be such an enigma but at the same time be put on this pedestal and the more i started like looking into it the more these contradictions were there like she you know nobody really knew her music and yet she, and and outside of, outside the tracks that we're talking about and outside of the Velvet Underground, nobody could really be like, well, these are like my five favorite Nico songs. And no, if you said, who is Nico? People either didn't know who she was at all, or they like, oh, she's in the Velvet Underground. And they're like, is she still alive? So like, I mean, literally, I think, I can't remember if I made it into the final edit of the book, but like one of my introductions at one point was like, is she like playing fairgrounds, doing like greatest hits? Like, has she been on stars dancing on ice? You know what I mean? Like, I didn't really know. And then the, the more I got into it, the more I was just like, this is such a crazy, weird, unique story. I have to do it. And I was completely sucked in. So that's how it came to be. It was just, it had to be told. And it ended up, I remember I, I was re-listening to some interviews I did. Um, it took four years to do the whole project, over a hundred interviews. And I I was re-listening to some of the interviews uh, recently, and one of my favorite interviews was actually with Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction, and one of the things I said to him, I'm like, Dave, it is CSI. It is CS, motherfucking I, doing this, because it's just, there is no information. It's the time. We're so dependent on the computer now, you know what I mean? And so any fact, any tiny minuscule crumb would be like an absolute like gold nugget. It would be like the golden ticket in Willy Wonka. Um, and that's, And at one point I had to let go because at one point I'm like, was literally trying to track like, okay, on December 16th, 1968 at 2 PM, where was she? And I'm like, okay, I have to let go of that. I have to just try to get the overall, as many facts as I can to form the picture of who she is. It's kind of like, you know, when they find like a a bone from like a Neanderthal and they make the head and there you're like, well, how do they know the eye color? Well, they probably don't, but they have the general idea from all the information, and that's what I tried to do.
0: Right, so it's the CSI thing is, it's a work of deduction, uh, uh, partly, anyway. I mean, uh, and particularly because of, of, you know, she's gone and lots of the sources are gone. I mentioned uh, uh, Rob Chapman, his, his biography of um, uh, Sid Barrett. And interestingly, the parallel with Sid Barrett would be, I mean, obviously Barrett died 2006, but, you know, the 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 musician barrett seemed to disappear you know in the early 70s and 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 in a way i think rob uh did face the same thing because everything that really could be known about barrett was known in some ways but what had happened is that the facts had uh, been discarded in favor of the fables and the fables, in fact, had actually grown far bigger than the facts themselves. So in Rob's uh, biography, it was you know, trying to trying to you know unpick the man from the myth in a way that you've done quite a, with Nico, actually, in this one. Um, but listen, let's just pause it there and back up the truck, as they say, because there may be people listening whose appetite is now wetted. Do
1: oh, you think so? Have I, have I convinced you?
0: I'm convinced. I'm in. <laughs> but um, there's might people who are going, Nico who? Who's Nico? So um, you're probably better placed than most to give us a you know whirlwind story of Nico. I mean, um, let's just set that out before we you know dig into uh, in depth and also into the book. Who was Nico?
1: So really, you have this girl who is born at the start of World War II, and her first memories are literally of bombs going off and seeing concentration camp victims being taken away to their deaths. And at a very young age, like she's not even a toddler and her dad is um, conscripted to go join the Third Reich. He doesn't want to. It's like you're forced to go. And the what happened to her dad is never really known. They don't know if he died on the battlefield. There's been like different things. I tried very hard to track down what actually happened to him, but there is no, I couldn't confirm that. I mean, I was literally in archives of of Nazi records and I couldn't confirm it because he was just cannon fodder to the war effort you know what I mean at that time so you know like you have these it's horrific like some of the pictures I was seeing of war-torn Berlin if you're looking at it when she, when um, Krista Pafkin goes and her mother returned to Ber- to Berlin after the war, like there's just dead bodies everywhere and crumbled buildings, and it's appalling. And to think of as a little kid, that's what you're seeing is just, it's, it's mind numbing. I can't even really believe. I can't imagine it to be, fi- to be fair. And I think for the rest of her life, Nico was trying to run away from that history that she inherited from no fault of her own. You know what I mean? Um, and her way of getting out of Germany, she just was looking for anything. And when she was, a like probably like a a, um, a tween we would say she decided she wanted to do ballet but she was too old she was too old to get started in a ballet career so the next thing that she decided to try was modeling because she was tall she was already beautiful and so eventually she got discovered modeling and that ended up being her ticket out of Germany so she became um, an international model and she was pretty much I, I just love it because she was just like just give me the money she was just like whatever the job was she didn't care what it is so some of the advertisements i just love it she's like laundry detergent no problem you know what i mean she's like the the opposite of was it linda evangelista that was like i won't get out of bed for x y and z amount of money not nico nico's like show me the shutter like she just would she just wanted to you know get away from the poverty that she'd grown up in um and so eventually, she. I'm, I'm trying to get, go as fast as I can here through the story. Uh, eventually, you know, from the modeling, she she runs into the the uh, Feder- Fellini folks, and she gets a walk on part that evolves into a bigger thing when the Fellini movie, and that's kind of gets her in with the whole art crowd set. This
0: is the uh, La Dolce Vita, right? That's
1: right, with La Dolce, with La Dolce, and like it's funny because. I had a hard time. This is, this is getting found. This is so, this is so not cool to say, but like I had a hard time sitting through the whole movie to be fair. And the part where she comes on, I can see why it made such a a big splash for her. Cause she just like lights up the screen, you know, like as soon as she comes on, she's absolutely stunningly beautiful. She's so charismatic. Like it's, it's like, she was made to be there. You can totally see why Fellini plucked her out and said yeah you have to be here for more than just like a walk-on part um and from that she ends up getting she kind of flubs it up because she gets offered to do another movie right after that and because she's modeling she forgets that she's been cast to do another big movie so she uh, kind of gets blacklisted a little bit but then she lands the movie strip tease that you and i were talking about but it's a flop actually um and she just during this whole time, she's kind of like, you know, flinting, you know, flitting around like New York, London, She's kind of all over the place. But by this time, unfortunately, her kind of look, which is really tall, kind of voluptuous, that is going out and the very like skinny, skinny London look is coming in. And she's already at this time, like mid 20s. She's having a lot of problems keeping her weight down um and you know like you it's it's interesting because you hear she just she talks about like you know i was this i was like this big large bird that was like trying to, I eat like one egg a day and I was just hungry all the time. And it's just hilarious because people don't think Anika was having a sense of humor, but she really did. Um, And around this time, she gets in with, she had this great knack for always like being at the right place at the right time. And she gets in with Andrew Luke Oldham, who I was lucky enough to interview for the book, a hilarious, funny, sharp man, absolutely loved him. And he signs her to do a record, I'm not saying... And she meets Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones through that. Um, Eventually she goes to the factory in New York and that's how she gets in with all the Warhol crew. Andy Warhol sees her and is just like, we need to get her in the mix. He recruits her to come and be in the Velvet Underground. And, And this is kind of the biggest thing that I think people are gonna freak out about and I might get in trouble with Velvet Underground fans. Is that if you look, start looking back through all the clippings and all the magazines, it is Nico and the Velvet Underground. Like she was brought into that band to be the thing that people looked at in the front of the band. Right. I
0: mean, we'll like him or loathe him. I mean, Warhol had the eye for bringing people together in that sort of way, didn't he?
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I love him. By the way, he's like an absolute genius. He seemed yeah. to always know when to, like, step in and help, but then also when to just let people get on and do their own thing.
0: I mean, he obviously saw something in them, but when she came along, or maybe she was already around, is this that he was it was his idea, wasn't it, to put her with them. And, of course, look what happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because the way it's been kind of re-envisioned is that she was like this add-on to the band in terms of, well, she, she's just disposable. But when you start reading back to, like, the way that it was positioned and advertised and everything, it was definitely she was the main thing. It was like she was Josie to their pussy cats. Like, Josie would not be as good or as amazing. Obviously, she needs the pussycats. But, like, Nico was the main center of attention. And that's, like, indisputable when you're, like, starting to look through archives and stuff. And that, I think, is, is something that's kind of been misinterpreted and forgotten in time. Right.
0: I mean, and this is one of the kind of myths, I suppose, that gets repeated or the kind of inaccuracies about her life that uh, gets repeated, isn't it? But uh, let's go on. What happens next?
1: So she eventually, there's a lot of tension in the Velvet Underground for various reasons. She ends up leaving the Velvet Underground. She has this affair with Jim Morrison, which is absolutely a revelation for her because she realises that she can... Write her own songs, play her own songs, do her own thing, and between when she hooks up with Jim Morrison and the Velvet Underground, she had she had done uh, some solo shows in New York, and she had recorded a record which was other people's songs, which is Chelsea Girl, which is what you and I were talking about, and she'd made a bunch of movies with Warhol, but what what but what Morrison shows her is you know what find an instrument that you can play, find your own voice. And it just like, he like sets her free. Like she suddenly, and I think this is such a great lesson for people and, but women in particular. And I, like even yesterday, I was doing a webinar with with a, a young woman and we were talking about this. Like there's this weird thing where like women just, they can, they see something. and I'm sure it's men too, but as a, I don't know, cause I'm only a woman. You see something, you're like, that is so amazing. But there's this weird kind of like hurdle that like, you're just like, You can't even think about actually doing it yourself. You know what I mean? It isn't that you think you can't do it. It's like you honestly can't visualize. It's just, I can't, there's like a weird disconnect there. You know what I mean? And Morrison lets her make that connection that she can write music and she doesn't have to do what other people are doing. She can just do her own weird art and that's fine.
0: I mean, that's interesting because of course, you know, we were talking about those wonderful songs on Chelsea Gill. She hated them. But
1: if you look look at the music she makes by herself, it's like, no wonder she hated them. Like she's this, and she she doesn't like pop music. Like Nico liked jazz. She liked Arabian music. She liked funky songs and classical music. And like, if you talk to James Young, like James Young's, dream was to do like some music like choir music or choral music from like the 18th century and reinterpreted by him and nico because that's what he and nico were both into you know and the other kind of thing that nico was really into was the american songbook so you talk to like philip rainford who was her he was in um he was in, a, no, not Cabaret Voltaire. He was in um, Durie Column. Philip actually was uh, her tour manager and like sound guy on some of the later tours. The two of them would just get together and start singing songs from like the Great American Songbook. So it, that Chelsea Girl record, that's like nothing that she's, that doesn't fall into any of the camp. It's not punk rock. It's not, it's not classical you know, like those kind of classical Americana songs. It's not. It's not anything. So- I mean, the
0: thing. The thing is, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it, obviously they're not her songs, uh, and as you say, it's completely not the style that she went on to do. So it's not really her, of course. But it's still a great record. It's a beautiful record, and it's a shame, of course, that she didn't actually sort of couldn't actually see that in it. But I think this is an interesting thing you say about Jim Morrison because. You're saying that he was there at the right time and actually, because he, you know, obviously he's, he's had a pretty bad press with the way he treated people and women, hasn't he? But in this case, he seems to have just been sort of alchemical or catalytic enough somehow to give her that boost of confidence to go and do her thing. And of course, this is the time when she starts with the harmonium an instrument an instrument which kind of defines the rest of her solo career, right? And a very unusual choice at the time, because it was completely, well, maybe not with John Cale, but, I mean, it was kind of, it was sort of out out of bounds for most rock musicians, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny, because I'm not saying that Jim Morrison is, it's almost like Jim Morrison is important, not necessarily because he's Jim Morrison, but like you said, he's just that person that sets her free. And I think the reason I think he in particular, besides giving her that power to kind of make that connection, if you look at her, what is the one thing that she's valued for? It's her appearance. And Jim Morrison is seen as just as sexy, just as hot. That's, he's valued, they're both valued for the same thing. But if you look at it, he's valued for that, but then he's also this like sexy poet, like magnetic, la, 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 la. And if you read like the way that they're written about the same time, like that's all she's valued for. And that yet- His thing is like, you know, you know, think about the pictures we see of, of course, the famous like, you know, lion pose and stuff like that. He's kind of he was her equal, you know what I mean? And like you read interviews with people that knew them both and knew that relationship. They're saying that like Nico topped him, Nico talked him sexually, Nico topped him. Probably literally Nico talked topped him like in consuming drugs and alcohol like she was his equal, if not better and I would even go so far as a writer I think she kicked his ass as well. So for the first time probably in her life, she met someone that looked beyond her looks and it looked inside of her and said you know what you actually have a lot to offer. And I think that 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 is... I I don't know if anyone else ever really gave that gift to her.
0: Right. Well, that's all credit to uh, Jim Morrison, isn't it? And um, also, of course, the other very important person in their life from Velvet Underground on was John Cale, right?
1: John Cale, from the time Nico meets John Cale in Velvet Underground all the way to the end of her life, he is, I think it was John Donahue from JD, from Mercury Rev. He said you know, out of everybody that is in her life, John Kale waters that flower and lets it bloom and grow. And it's just so true. It's like through the ups and the downs and the drugs and the this and the that it's John Kale is that constant that is there for her. And so, you know, John, John Kale, it's produces marble index. And of course, Danny Fields signs uh, Nico to Electra, and for this record, and it is probably one of the masterpieces, I would say, of the 20th century. It's an absolutely beautiful, very difficult to listen to, iconic album from the very start cover to the production to the songs on it. Everything about it is just insane and beautiful. Um, of course, what it, what a shocker, it doesn't do well commercially. And it kind of, you know, I think that that kind of, and Nico starts doing heroine quite quite a lot around that time she ends up moving to Paris to be with Philip Goral the filmmaker and she has kind of this time period which a lot of people said in the past is like her lost years which is like the 70s going into the 80s where she makes quite a few records but and she makes a lot of experimental films with Philip Goral um, but she you know the records are not they're, they're not sales successes. She's kind of hand-to-mouth in terms of financially. There's some really, really sad interviews in the book that, you know, like her talking about going to parties and people are like literally pointing at her and going like, there's Nico. And she's just like going to parties, to get food to eat. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really horrible. Yes. Difficult to read.
0: Yeah. So by this time she's kind of lost in sort of junky life and heroin and on the downer, right?
1: she does people. not have she does not have money and it's difficult it's difficult to read as someone that's worked with a lot of artists that have problems you know what i mean that have have drug dependency problems it's hard to read as a woman it's hard to read reviews of people writing about her at that time there wasn't that many there's not very much written about that time period and it a lot of things written are there I think I think I found like one woman that wrote about Nico in that whole of all the articles I read one woman and I'm not saying that it has to be a woman looking at it but like everything is just like she looks doughy she's nodding off she's fat it's dreary it's just I'm not saying those things weren't true by the way I'm not saying that but like there's no if you look at just the way that And having worked, I'm not going to say people, but some very high profile artists that had equally bad drug dependency problems, they're just not written about in the same sort of way.
0: So this is one of the things that you you know, in the book that you talk about quite a bit, actually, is is that there's a... Obviously there's an inequality in the way that she and other women have been treated, and lots of the lots of the reviews at this time about her, as you point out, are all about her appearance, about the fact that she's losing her appearance. losing losing her looks. I mean Warhol himself sort of says some pretty cruel things about her, doesn't he? You know, when he sort of sees her own about this time. Quite brutal. And um and I, and, and just as a sort of little intercession here before we go back to the story. One of the things that we were talking about earlier is that in the counterculture, which in many ways was extremely progressive, the underground in the sort of late 60s, 70s and on, when it came to the way women were taught about, it was quite retrograde, wasn't it? I mean, there was the chicks, the birds, and all that sort of stuff. But the women, including Nico and Marianne Faithful and those other people, they talked about often predominantly in the way that they're ageing, their, their weight, their looks, um, all that sort of stuff which the men don't really get. You
1: know what? And I think even now we're talking about you know 40 50 years ago but I don't think really that much has changed I mean I just for me as someone in their 40s there's nobody who do I look to to go okay like everybody's like well there's Helen Mirren you know what I mean there's Helen Mirren like who is there that's like cool rock and roll aging gracefully still kind of punk rock like you know there's not that many people to look to. And if you look to someone like a Kim Gordon or a Chrissy Hind or a Susie, which, you know, Nico is a little bit, is older than them, really, because that generation looked up to Nico. And Nico didn't really have anyone to look up to. Like, who is it that she looked up to? There isn't really anyone as a woman.
0: But in in some ways, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Jen, but it didn't sort of bother her, did it? I mean, in a strange way. I mean, it it would be difficult. You'd have to be kind of made of stone for it not to bother you, for people to comment on the way you look and compare you with how you used to look. But at the same time, it sort of didn't seem to kind of rattle her. I mean, she just carried on, didn't she?
1: Well, you know what? I never met her. Um, I was just a a child when she died. But for the people that knew her, I kind of get various, uh, you know, it's I've I've read and talked to some people that knew her quite well and said she loved it. She loved the aesthetic of being like, my teeth are not good. You know, I have junky teeth. I have junky skin. I'm wrinkled. My hair is not, is not what it it once was. But then I heard from other people like, you know, her ex-boyfriends and people that were more intimate with her and said that she really did have a lot of problems when people said that she looked not well and that she it really did bother her so I'm not really sure I th- I think that it was something I think in a way not looking the way that she was expected to look aka super skinny blonde Warhol factory days I think it was freeing for her but I think you know I can say this as a woman it's like you don't want to be judged by that but at the same time you still want people to think you're attractive. So it's this warrior always playing with yourself, you know? And I don't think, you know, I've, I never knew her. I never talked to her about it, but I can't see, like you said, she was human. I can't see it being something that was easy for her either way. And at the end of the day, she wanted to be taken seriously as an artist and as a poet. And as that was the most important thing to her, not as a face and not as a visual element as warhol calls her
0: right but i mean also there's two separate things there was there is the thing about getting old just aging which is kind of shameful <laughs> getting yeah. older um, uh, but then there's the other thing i suppose in a way that she her lifestyle you know junkie lifestyle um you can kind of understand why people would comment on that too you know because that man or women I of course that's going to have a pretty deleterious effect isn't it as well so you had sort of two things in parallel didn't you
1: but i mean my question is always and this i actually got in a huge argument with danny fields last week about this because
0: danny Fields, legendary punk music manager
1: yeah he was just like it's all the same women and men addicts and i said to him like it's not danny it's not the same he's like yes it is it's all the same and i just said even if you even look at the people she was around they had Lou Reed had drug problems. David Bowie had drug problems Iggy had drug problems you know Iggy will sit there and tell you he did and they are you know like Iggy Pop I worship and love Iggy Pop and he's been so supportive of this project and I would not have gotten this far without him so you know I owe everything to him but he was, is held in a different esteem than Nico was.
0: True, you do say that, actually. And that, in a way, is, we're on sort of another myth there, aren't we? Which is that the men from that time that became junkies, um, it's had a kind of doomed romance to it, didn't it? So, So it's part of the whole kind of... You know, byronic, kind of, um, you know, sort of wasted, elegantly wasted, you know, in some it's in some ways, it's kind of being rather heroic or something in a rock and roll way. Uh, and and the heroin chic thing applied to the men, but not to people like Nico
1: exactly. And it was funny because, I remember when Chris Cornell was somebody that I worked with and like, I used to exchange Christmas cards with Chris Cornell and someone I really liked and cared about.
0: Chris Cornell, lead singer of Soundgarden who had long-term drug problems.
1: Danny loved, Danny Fields loved Chris Cornell. And so I when we, he and I were arguing last week, I said, Chris Cornell. And Danny's like, oh, he was such a sweet boy and da dah, da dah, And I said, Danny, listen to yourself. What woman, you, you name a woman for me, that you're going to sit there and say, oh, she's so sweet and wonderful. And she is a junkie. Like you're just, you can't. And like, he, he couldn't name one, but then he kept kind of coming back to his whole, like, they're the same. And yet if you talk to and like, I hung up with him and I called one of my friends who's a a well-known female musician. And I said, "Um, I I could be wrong. You know what? I will hold up my hands and say, I'm wrong. Like I could be wrong. I could, because do you know what? I'll tell you this. The main thing that came from writing this book was anger. That's really what I felt when I was writing this was anger. I'm not I am like not some like burn your bra feminist person. I'm not like in fact like my my auntie and I like I told my aunt is my hero and she and I've gotten in tons of fights about like me too. You know, I come from the music business. Like I've had my ass grabbed. I've I've gone up to guys' rooms and, and inappropriate things have been, you know, that's just that's just the culture I grew up in. And this writing this this upset me. This made me angry. Because why is this woman who's making art for art's sake why is she been cast as a junkie and a slut and you you can't tell me that these men around her are not doing the exact same thing and yet there's put people posters of them on the wall and not her
0: Right so that and that does actually come through in the book actually this kind of rage at the double standards of it
1: I, I wasn't writing it like that I was writing it cuz I'm like I want people to think about why is it that we're casting her like this Here's this woman that is like brought up in this horrific, like I can't envision like that kind. I mean, I I I hope not very many people have that kind of horror nightmare kind of growing up situation. You know what I mean? And like her whole life, she's trying to kind of like outrun what people are casting upon her. She's a Nazi. She's a racist you know, I'm sure she has, those things were part of her growing up. So I'm sure a lot of those things were in her mind and she was kind of fighting against herself for her whole life and to get away from that. And, and what I didn't mention is, you know, she had a son with um, Alan DeLong, the actor, and there was a lot of problems with, with that relationship and Alan DeLong never accepting the son and she had there's a lot of of inner turmoil with Nico, and I and a lot of mental health problems. And if we look at the that, if we look at those things through the context of 2021, I think it's hard not to be angry with the way that history has has not, you know, examined her before.
0: Yeah. So and to compare again, compare and contrast again, actually, with Sid Barrett and. You know, there are some comparisons, say, with the way that you and Rob Chapman have sought to, you know, dismantle the myths in favour of the person. I mean, the contrast with Barrett is quite interesting because, of course, he disappeared in the early 70s, effectively, and he'd been this incredibly beautiful, talented, charismatic star. And, of course, he disappears into really a, a, a life of, you know, mental health problems, you know, and he turns up in the early 70s, he's in the Pink Floyd recording session for Wish You Were Here is massively overweight and bald, and, you know, he's lost his looks, etc. And yet, you know, as Rob points it, the myth after that, he gets mythologized after that into this, almost like this kind of gnomic, you know, wise person who's retreated from the world, is seen through it all. Uh, and the myths kind of elevate him into being this kind of mystic Whereas uh, with Nico, it goes in the opposite direction, even though she carries on flourishing as an artist for all those years. Uh, the myths about her seem to circulate on the fact that she's not as attractive as she was, and she's a junkie, and she's all these other things. And it's mythologising in both directions, almost like we need to do that. But both of the actual people involved at the centre of these stories seemed to rather unfairly get eclipsed by the myths that we make of them
1: right yeah I mean one of the things that was and this is again like we were talking about before why it's a different but I've had a couple people on Twitter say why should I read your book when there's this other biography out there and I I said you know a couple things like one thing I really found when I was doing the Joy Division Nirvana PhD is that History becomes history because it's repeated enough times over. That doesn't mean it's necessarily the truth. And I I found this because because I worked with Nirvana. That was one of the first bands I went on tour with and did stuff with. It, it was really really an eye opener to kind of start delving into what's been written and go, ha, huh, this is interesting. That this is not at all what happened. And it's not just me saying that. I can go to this person, this person, this person that I worked with at the label, I was on tour, you know, it isn't just me being like a cray cray person, like all of us remember it, but this is what's been written. And since it's been written, it's been repeated and repeated. And now that's the history, you, right. see, but I, you know, and with joy division, it's like, I wasn't there. I was like, you know, I was only six when he, Ian Curtis killed himself, but talking to like, Peter Hook. And this was, this was a, this will do your head in. I'm sorry. I'm kind of going off from Nico, but I'll come back to how it's relevant in one second. I was um, because as part of my PhD, I went every month on the same day to Ian Curtis's grave and I documented all the stuff that people left on Ian Curtis's grave. Right. And because of this, I got to know everybody at the graveyard as one does, of course, you know, and so the guy that um, actually cremated Ian Curtis and buried his ashes, still worked at the graveyard at the time. And so I was doing some, I was doing a talk or a book signing or something. And this guy, like, you know, years later, and this guy comes in to the book signing. He's like, I know Ian Curtis isn't in that ground. It's not true. All this cray cray stuff. Right. And he's like, I read it on a forum." And I'm seeing they're going. I don't know how much more, without being completely macabre, this person actually took the corpse, did the action, took the remains, put them in the ground. I mean, I don't really know like how much more you can get than that. You know what I mean? And like these, that's how all these new kind of all these things get started. And so when it comes to Nico and like why my book is different, because I had that firsthand knowledge of one, working at at the record companies and working at internet and see a company and seeing how myths can quickly transform, but also having that academic research background. I wasn't just gonna believe something I read in a book because it said in a book, therefore it must be true. I wanted to go, where does this come from? This person's interviewed, who is this person? Where did they find this person? Where was this interview take place? Like what day did it take place? How did you find this person? Like I wanted to know the details. What archived is this from? Like what archive did you look in? And I know that sounds like really nitty gritty and like really like granular and, and anal, but this is someone's life we're talking about and someone that all this mythology has been built around. And I wanted to get as deep to the truth as I possibly could. And that was Really important to me writing this book,
0: right? Uh, and that's apparent in the book. Um, I mean, again, with Barrett, you know, there's incidents that you know became facts, really, that they probably never happened in the first place. Or there's the incident about him, you know, walking onto the runway at Heathrow Airport trying to flag a plane down, which sounds bonkers, you know. But of course, it gets repeated enough times and reported enough times that then other writers reported as fact, and it's sort of, before you know it, it's become the truth sort of thing. The other interesting thing, uh, which happened, I think, after Rob Chapman's uh, book, which was supported by Barrett's family, and by David Gilmore, you know, who, from the people who knew, knew him best, probably, um, is that, did it make any difference to the mythologizing? Not really. I mean, you know, you worked at Facebook, so you probably know this, but at the most, you know, th- there's still Facebook groups out there that are talking about Barrett in in the that way, that mythologized way. It's and I know that you've taught uh, and studied fandom. And it's all part of that too, isn't it? You know, this um this that we're all fans and we we need our myths. And I wonder whether there's something positive there.
1: Well just I was just gonna say one last thing about the history making. One of the things that happened last week is I had to turn in my Final manuscript of Nico. Final, 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 final. And I was on the phone with Danny Fields for five and a half hours and he went over my entire manuscript. But this was really interesting because he went over it and he was like, okay, on page 136, it says East 86th Street. Well, it was actually West 86th Street. And it was those little details of things that I'd read in other books. And I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but like, it's those little details that over time change and mutate until something that's completely different than what actually happened. And that was invaluable to me to getting the the truth straight about stuff. And I think that those little details are what can complete. It's like, if you're drawing a port, tattooing a portrait of someone, if you just get it off by a millimeter, it changes everything in, in the story. And when we're talking about fandom, you know, one of the reasons it's not really about Sid Barrett and it's not really about Nico. It's about, and the reason these fan sites don't change, I'm already getting crazy email. I mean, I'm like dreading it. Like I had to change on my personal website. I had my own email on there and I changed it to be my agent's emails because I was already starting to get really insane emails from people. Um, Because it's not really about Nico and it's not really about Sid Barrett. It's about the people that have invested their own egos and belief systems in who and what they thought and think these people are. And that's really what it is, you know? You see all these, you see people right now, for example, like, so, like, with Morrissey. Like, I wrote, my my MA is actually on Morrissey fandom. and. And people wrap up so much of their belief system in these bands and ideas. And it's is it really about the bands, or is it about the fact that we in we look to these people for guidance? You know, yeah. I'm right, I'm writing a book right now about Britney Spears, and it's fascinating because why are we looking to Britney Spears for guidance? You know, like she doesn't have a college education, she got like homeschooled on the at the Mickey Mouse Club lot why are we looking at that as like someone to as a good example for kids it's like she's an entertainer and you know when you're talking about counterculture I think the fact that Nico did say I don't give a hoot about my looks I'm going to you know I'm going to try to I'm just going to make music that I don't care if you think it's unlistenable it's what I like like to me that's totally inspiring and that's badass
0: well that's also counterculture isn't it
1: Yeah, it's so cool. Like, to me, that is amazing. That that is, like, aspirational, not to to put two fingers up to what everybody else thinks and just do your own thing. I think is
0: That is countercultural. And, of course, there wasn't really a context for it at the time. I mean, in contrast, I mean, what what were women supposed to do? I was thinking uh, the other day about, um, you know, a contrast to Nika maybe would be somebody like Mary Hopkins. Now, this is no critique of Mary Hopkins at all, but, you know, she was somebody who came to fame, you know, and had some hits in the late 60s and early 70s you know, beautiful, young, talented Welsh woman, musician, you know, has her time um, under the spotlight and, you know, you know, carried on afterwards, did a few things, you know, married a record producer, Tony Visconti, I think, and I had a family. And, you know, she's done things since, but she's, you know, sort of, is it effectively retired to the country uh, in, you know, respectable life and all that. It's no critique of her. Um, and I'm sure she's very happy, but it was just, that maybe that was what you're supposed to do whereas Nico didn't do what you're supposed to do.
1: She didn't take that path. And there was no one for her to look up to. And she was just like, she must've felt so alone. I can't even imagine how alone Nico must've felt. Like I just, it just makes me so sad to think about it. Like abandoned and alone.
0: Abandoned and alone. And I want to come back to that. You mentioned Manchester in the context of Morrissey, right? But I mean, we've had to zip through her amazing life story. And I think it is very important to say that, you know, as you've said, it, you know, repeated in the book, you know, she had a solo career of 20 years. You know, she, she toured all over the world. She played many, many shows. She released lots of records. She did her own thing. And then in 1981, she moved to Manchester and spent a bit, a big chunk of time there living in, you know, some pretty unpleasant surroundings with uh, some musicians, with some junkies and... It seems quite strange somehow. So tell us about that.
1: My favourite part of doing the book was writing about her time in Manchester. She basically gets booked to do a show up there by a guy named named Alan Wise, who was in that whole circle with, with Tony Wilson And um, really just, you know, one of the movers and shakers in that early 80s Manchester scene, she gets booked to do a show with him. He really takes her under his wing. They really loved Nico and really just, it was just so genuine, like, talking to them about their time, being on the road with her. It it was really heartbreaking. Like, she literally just would live in a shared house with with folks. Um, All of her possessions could fit in just, like, a, a bin bag. And yeah it was it was quite it was quite harrowing but also really moving to talk to a lot of the the people that she was friends with and played music with during that time she loved it she
0: felt like she was at home in some way right she felt like
1: she felt like the architecture looked like berlin she felt like i mean she had a great circle of friends who really cared about her looked after her and took care of her she i would i would say she had these were like it was probably the one of the first times that she had a real circle of friends who really honestly cared about her. Like, like I said, Phil Rainford from um, Duity Column. he was a great friend to her. James Young, who was her musical arranger and collaborator. He also wrote that great book, songs they never play on the radio. He was a good friend to her. One of the Una Baines who plays in the uh, Blue Orchids, she was, She really was, she was a big fan of Nico's, but I would also say a good friend to Nico. And it just, you know, here was the first time she had a circle around her of people that didn't care what she looked like. You know, they weren't there for the fame. They were just true mates. And I think that that was, that's actually when she came off the heroin, was when she was under Alan Wise's wing and when she started on the the methadone and when she started getting, you know, more cleaned up. It was during that time period. And she really finds her community. And I think that's what makes it so sad that she, when she, you know, she leaves. She doesn't. She leaves to go to Ibiza just to spend some time with Ari and get to know her son as an adult. And it makes it that much more heart wrenching when you know she dies.
0: We should just tell that story because I mean, so you know, we've we fast forwarded through it. She's been in Manchester. She's been touring the whole time. She's got that kind of community of mates, musicians, and sort of a mentor. And you know, Alan Wise in particular is a kind of manager slash mentor slash friend. Strange relationship, isn't it? But um uh uh. And all those people around her, but then what happens?
1: Well, you know, like that was a very strange relationship. I mean, like James Young describes it as it was like a married couple. And I think Ellen Wise really fancied her. And I think he did really love her, but she was like not having any of it but at the same time, I think that she, she needed someone to look after her. And I think she, you know, I, whether it was a healthy relationship or not, I'm not hundred percent sure one way or the other, but what I can say is that you could really see how in that kind of environment, she could have really had like a comeback, you know? Um, and so she goes and she goes with Ari to Abitha, and Abitha was really Nico's spiritual home. It's where she was the happiest. It was where she felt the most free. And she goes there to just, she thinks she's just going to spend a couple months kind of regroup. She wants to write her own autobiography. And I think that everybody around her thought that it was going to be kind of like, she was going to go, she was going to chill out. She was going to, you know, just kind of write this book and then come back, do some more music. And it was going to be like this whole rebirth. And what ends up happening instead is she one day, she leaves on her bike to go into town. Ari is just left at the house. She says goodbye to him on her bicycle leaves. And that's the last time he sees her. And it turns out that she fell off her bike. She had um, what would be basically a brain aneurysm. And she was uh, brought to several different hospitals. And because she looked like a homeless person and they thought she didn't have health insurance, They wouldn't admit her to the hospital, and she basically was shoved onto a gurney and just put in the in the corner at the hospital. She was eventually admitted to, and they were just like, "Oh, you're just some old hippie that has sunstroke." And by the time they figured out what was wrong with her, they tried to find a vein to administer medicine to to save her, and she didn't have any viable veins. So she basically just died by herself in the hospital i mean it
0: is tragic and awful and one has to feel you know through all this for ari i mean he had this extraordinary difficult life sort of with her without her and you know then this happens you know at the end and um i guess it's def- she, her life has defined him somewhat isn't it
1: poor ari it's just all that anyone ever wants to talk to him about is nico you know and that must be so difficult like what about me like who am i as a person like don't you care about what i have your heart just has to go out to that guy you know
0: very tough indeed um so we're coming to the end though jen and i think the important thing is that for me anyway was is that the way you redeemed her life in terms of busting some of those myths pointing them out at least anyway and and that got those kind of contradictions of the way she was even and it did have a kind of happy ending in the sense that she found that community and stuff in manchester and the other thing of course really is is that how inspirational she's been or she was even when she's alive paddy smith susie you know those other women from that time um and also since you know i mean she's i know it's not everybody's cup of tea, Morrissey at the moment, but I mean, you know, he, he was very influential Influential on him, wasn't she? You know, uh, and Iggy Pop and all those people actually cite her, you know, as as an inspiration. And I think that's, that's also a kind of redemption of a soul, isn't it?
1: I mean, absolutely. I mean, that was a great part of... For me, it was really fun talking to people like Iggy Pop, talking to Dave Navarro and just... Gabbing with them like a nerd, like a music fan, and just hearing how this woman had changed the trajectory of their life, like, or talking to Mark Lanigan from the Screaming Trees about how he discovered the Velvet Underground records in the small town that he grew up in and how he's like this little weirdo finding these like gems in like a dusty record store. It is, it, it, it really kind of shows you like, she might be gone, but she's still working her magic. You know what I mean? And that's like really beautiful. Um, I got this, can I just read you this amazing quote that Iggy gave me about Nico? Would that be okay? This book is not for everyone. Read it only if you are wise or daring. Here is the odyssey of Nico, Oracle to the giants and losers. One day her music will play on Mars. Could I just say one thing that I really want to make sure that you include though in this? And that is, there's been a lot of, you know, things that has been written a lot that Nico lies and like, there's a biography out there. It's even called The Lies and Life of an Icon. And I think it's really important. Like I, I remember when I sat down to talk to Iggy, I said, did Nico lie? And he said, no. And it's important to remember like, who doesn't lie in Hollywood, in Warhol's factory, everything's exaggerated, you know what I mean, and in that time period especially, and I just remember that was one of the first things I sat and asked Iggy was, did she lie, and he was just like, why are you even asking me that, That's such a strange question to ask, you know, and I think that, that that is something I really wanted to make sure I got across in the book, is that I think to, 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 crucify her as a liar and to have that be kind of a main thing that we say, this is who she was a liar. It's like, really like, where do we, who does, who doesn't kind of exaggerate the truth in Hollywood and, or in, or in show business and definitely Warhol's factory. I mean, like he made up superstars, like their names weren't even really their own, you know what I mean? But the people that actually knew her, she didn't lie to, she didn't, she had no reason to lie, you know?
0: Yes, but the important thing also to say is that, you know, she she wasn't an angel. You know, I think Barney Hoskins, uh, in his review of your book, says something about, you know, I love this book, but I'm not sure if I love Nico at the end of it. And, you know, a difficult, challenging person, you know, because that's the danger, of course, isn't it, with... Uh, with the mythologising of course is to maybe you know move from one end which is that this person you know was a racist a liar you know junkie slut all that sort of stuff to flip into no no she was misunderstood angel and all that stuff you don't do that either in the book of course because she was uh, all sorts of things uh, all sorts of contradictions and you know like most of us right and um, she was no angel
1: no, she wasn't. She was, a, she was a hot, you know, as we'd say, she was a hot mess. Bless her. Bless her, as we'd say in America.
0: All right. Listen, Jen, we got there. Thank you so much. So um, you are beautiful and you are alone, the biographer of Nico, a redemptive myth-shattering biography, one of the 20th century's most underestimated creative and artistic forces. And it is, actually. So thank you for the book. And thank you for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Out July 1st at Good Bookshops Everywhere.
0: Go get it. It's great stuff. Thank you, Jen. Um, I'm going to get Jen back, actually. I think she's written all sorts of other stuff, but I've got to get her on the subject of fandom, I think. Or maybe Iggy Pop. Um, Anyway, Uh, so I'll put a link to uh, Jen in the show notes. Also, just if you're interested, Jen's top five Nico songs, My Heart is Empty, Alone, 6040, You Forgot to Answer, and Frozen Warnings. I would add in there, These Days and Fairest of the Seasons from Chelsea Gill, for, they're in that Royal Tenenbaums soundtrack and uh, I know that Nico <laughs> didn't like them but actually they are wonderful. And the other one, of course, the cracker, I think the very first one that got me interested in it was when she sings Strip Tease, which is a Gansborg pen song for the film Strip Tease. Uh, I, uh, Jen and I, I think that was a great film although it was a bit of a flop at the time. So there we have it, and we will be back next time with more stories from the counterculture, more stories from the underground. You can check us out at bureauoflostculture.com. Uh, You can now get this uh, series, the Bureau of Lost Culture series, on all the podcast providers, as well as Soho Radio, of course. Um, Apple, Google, Spotify, blah, 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 all the other places. If you enjoy it, um, do leave us a review. I'd appreciate that. And as I say, tell your friends. I am Stephen Coates.